Uh, this morning, I'm going to uh, share with you some of the uh, thoughts and ideas from the sixth chapter of the book. Uh, it has to do with the uh, with the law, and I want to start by reading to you um, part of a piece from uh, it was in the New York Times, uh, written by David Brooks, whose uh, whose articles are very good if you if you're not familiar with them. Um, let me just read. This was from. Um, an article titled, If It Feels Right. He said, During the summer of 2008, the eminent Notre Dame sociologist Christian Smith led a research team that conducted in-depth interviews with 230 young adults from across America. The interviews were part of a larger study that Smith, Carrie Christofferson, Hillary Davidson, Pat uh, Patricia Herzog, and others have been conducting on the state of America's youth. Smith and company asked about the young people's moral lives, and the results are quite depressing. It's not so much that these young Americans are living lives of sin and debauchery, at least no more than you'd expect from 18 to 23-year-olds. What's disheartening is, what, is how bad they are at thinking and talking about moral issues. The interviewers asked open-ended questions about right and wrong, moral dilemmas, and the meaning of life. In the rambling answers which Smith and company recount in a new book, Lost in Transition, you see the young people groping to say anything sensible on the matters. But they just don't have the, the categories of vocabulary to do so, they said. When asked to describe the moral dilemma that they had faced, two-thirds of the young people either couldn't answer the question or describe problems that are not moral at all, like whether they could afford to rent a certain apartment or whether they had enough quarters to feed the meter at a parking spot. Not many of them have previously given much or any thought to many of the kinds of questions about morality that we asked, Smith and his co-workers write. When asked about wrong or evil, they could generally agree that rape and murder are wrong, but aside from these extreme cases, moral thinking didn't enter the picture, even when considering things like drunken driving, cheating in school, or cheating on a partner. I don't really deal with right and wrong that often is how one interviewee put it. The default position which most of them came back to again and again is that moral choices are just a matter of individual taste. It's personal, the respondents typically said. It's up to the individual. Who am I to say? And what strikes me as I read this article is this one thought. And this one thought is moral confusion, moral confusion in the lives of these young people. Now, with this as my kind of introduction, I want to begin with this thought that God is the ultimate moral law giver. And the moral law that he has dispensed to us is found in the Bible. Now, with that thought, I want to, to go to a scene from a movie and ask you to think about this. I don't know if you saw it. It came out over 20 years ago. It was a somewhat popular movie. It was called Grand Canyon with Kevin Klein and Danny Glover in it. And Klein plays the role of a lawyer. And he's been to a professional basketball game, and he's getting on the interstate trying to get home. And he sees all this traffic and he decides he's going to take a shortcut. 
And even though he has to drive through one of the rougher areas of town, he figures it's worth it. And he's driving this nice Lexus, and he comes to a stop, and to his chagrin, his car stalls. And it's in the middle of the night. He's afraid to get out of his car, so he, he has a cell phone, and he calls a wrecker, a wrecker service. And as he's waiting, you see these seedy characters come out of the, out of the dark, and they realize what they have right there in their neighborhood. This well-dressed attorney in this expensive car. And right when they're about to really take advantage of him and, and break the wound and pull him out, the cavalry arrives. Danny Glover pulls up in his wrecker. And he's starting to hook the car up, and these guys begin to give him some grief. So he takes the leader of the group, takes him aside, and announces firmly. This is what he says, man... The world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude, referring to the lawyer, is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is right here. Isn't that an interesting thought? Life the way it's supposed to be. He's referring to a type of moral behavior that we expect in human beings. There seems to be a right way to live. Now, in our culture today, the social sciences like psychology and sociology, they attempt to describe the way things are in the human condition. But morality, on the other hand, prescribes the way things ought to be, the way people ought to live. C.S. Lewis says that just as physical life is governed by the law of gravity, human beings are governed by the moral law. The only difference, he notes, is that the individual has the right to obey or not to obey. Because the Christian understanding is that the world is designed a certain way. And God imparts to each one of us the way things ought to be and the way that we should live. And the Bible is God's morality. It spells out absolute moral obligations. And these moral obligations are binding on all people at all times in all places. And not only these moral obligations outlined in the Bible, but we also have an innate moral sense within us because we are designed in the image of God. Animals don't have that moral sense. My golden retriever, when he's out chasing a squirrel, if he catches him and kills him, we don't say he is an evil dog. That's what golden retrievers do. And C.S. Lewis speaks of this very clearly. I think very brilliantly in his classic Mere Christianity. Listen to what he says. He says, whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining. It's not fair. Before you can say Jack Robinson, 
He says a nation may say treaties don't matter, but then the next minute they spoil their case by saying that the particular treaty they want to break was an unfair one. But if treaties do not matter and there is no such thing as right and wrong, in other words, if there is no moral law, what is the difference between a fair treaty and an unfair one? Have they not let the cat out of the bag and shown that whatever they say, they really know the law of morality like everyone else? It seems then we are forced to believe in a very real right and wrong. People may be sometimes mistaken about them, just as people sometimes get their sums wrong in mathematics, but they are not a matter of mere taste and opinion. They are absolute moral obligations. And yet, as as probably most of you know, in the modern world that we live in, they seem to have, our, our, our culture, our society seems to have a problem with the moral law that is found in the Bible. And what I've come to recognize, there are two separate groups of people that struggle with Christian morality. The first is clearly those who don't believe that God exists. In other words, they don't believe that there is a moral law giver. And so if there is not a, a, a God to give us the moral law, then there really does not, it really does not exist. Richard Dawkins, for instance, takes this view. He says, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom, there's no purpose, there's no evil, there's no good, nothing but pointless indifference in the universe. In other words, there's no evil, there's no good because there is no God. And yet, how do you define what happened in Connecticut, when you say there is no evil and there is no good. Now, there's a second group of people, and I think they're even more prevalent in our culture today. They may believe in a spiritual world. They may believe in a God. They may even be in the church. But they find that the Bible and the morality contained in the Bible, the law, is antiquated and outdated and doesn't really apply to enlightened modern people. And in essence, they don't like Christian morality, particularly how it addresses sexual conduct. Peter Kreeft, and I'm not even sure he still teaches, but he taught for years at Boston College. He's written over 50 books. He's a philosopher. He's, he's quite well educated. I've read several of his books. He says, people's fear of permanent objective moral laws is amazingly selective. <clears throat> he says it almost always comes down to just one area, sex. He says, and I quote, in my experience at Boston College, students, like professors, bluff a lot, and they do adroit intellectual dancing. But I would bet a wad of money that if only sexual morality in the Bible was made optional, nearly all the hatred and fear of the church would vanish. And you know, I think he's right, or he's really on to something here. Because what I've observed, if you don't believe that God determines what is moral and immoral, you will generally find yourself facing all types of moral confusion as described in the article that I read from David Brooks when we started. And the reason is, 
you'll have to come up with your own moral code to live by. In other words, we'll have to invent our own morality. And then our greatest challenge becomes how to find a stable ground for what is right and wrong. You know, what, became, what becomes the basis of what's moral and immoral? Tim Keller says that so many of us base our moral convictions on this. What I like, what I want, what I feel, and what I desire. In other words, what he's saying is a person's final authority today seems to be their heart, their desires. Follow your heart, follow your feelings, follow your desires wherever they might lead you. And this reminds me of a famous debate that took place back in 1948 between Bertrand Russell and uh, Father F.C. Coffelston. It was uh, broadcast on the BBC, and they were talking about the moral argument for the existence of God. And Russell says, uh, he was asked, how do you, uh, Coppleston, who was a Christian, asked Russell, who was an atheist, how do you distinguish between good and evil? Russell says, I don't have any justification any more than I have when I distinguish between yellow and blue. What is my justification between distinguishing yellow and blue? I can see they are different. You distinguish between yellow and blue, Coppleton said, by seeing them. So you distinguish good and evil, evil by what faculty? And listen to what he said. My feelings, of course. My feelings. Do you realize what he's saying? He believed that we don't have a transcendent law handed down to us. And therefore, ethical decisions need to be made based on how I feel about a particular issue. However, the problem with this is, and this approach to life is, it seems to be a slippery slope that can lead into the abyss. And an example I use in the book is Jeffrey Dahmer, probably the most famous serial killer to ever live. And before he was murdered in prison, he gave an interview with Stone Phillips on ABC News. And to try to get to the heart of what led him down this path, he said he grew up not believing that God existed. And therefore, he says he didn't believe in good or evil, nor a final judgment, nor any type of purpose in life. He said in high school, he found in himself this desire to torture animals. He said it gave him pleasure. He said, I quote, I could not find any significant reason not to satisfy my desires. He says then when he got to the point that torturing animals didn't give him much satisfaction, that's when he decided to torture people. And he said this, Based on my view of life and morality, he said, I could not think of a reason why I shouldn't. He was following his feelings and desires. And he couldn't come up with any sufficient reason why not to. Now, I'm not saying that all atheists end up being serial killers. But what I am saying is you see real moral confusion. And it comes from the worldview that he had 
on God and morality and purpose. You see this also, if you've ever done any reading on Nazi Germany. Two summers ago, I read Eric Metaxas' wonderful book on the life of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And this is one of the uh, uh, parts of the book. He says this, Hitler's dream was to see the triumph of the strong over the weak. That's why he hated Christianity. He saw it kind of as slave morality. And the book went on to say, in order to see his dream fulfilled, brutality would have to be cultivated as a virtue. And what's interesting is when you read the transcript from the Nuremberg trials where the Nazi leaders were tried, listen to how the Nazis justified their actions. They said, quote, Granted, our legal system is not the same as yours. Our fundamental values are not the same as yours. And we simply made our legal system reflect our own cultural values, our own morality. Our rule involved Aryan supremacy, and we did not regard Jews as human beings on the same level as Aryans. From our standpoint, then, Jews certainly did not deserve to benefit from Aryan rights. And listen to this. And they concluded, And the only reason that we find ourselves on trial here today is that you won the war and we lost it. In other words, you're imposing your value system on us, but we don't agree with that. You see, that's what happens when you try to create your own morality. Because they, what they contended was that killing innocent Jews was lawful under their value system that they had established. You see, brutality was a virtue in this culture. And this is why that famous statement by Russian author Dostoevsky rings so true. If there is no God, all things in life are permissible. But listen to the response of the Allied judges. They said, the chief counsel for the United States at the Nuremberg Trials, Robert H. Jackson, appealed to permanent transcultural values. He appealed to the law beyond the law as a universal law. He said that a system of ethics must point beyond itself. It has to be transcendental, and its basis cannot rest within the finite world. Otherwise, how could one in good faith say that the Nazis were guilty of a crime. Folks, this is such a crucial issue to grasp. There was a famous law professor who's now deceased. He taught at Yale Law School. His name was Arthur Leff. He, uh, he wrote an article in the Duke University Law Journal titled, Unspeakable Ethics, Unnatural Law. And it's considered a very famous essay today. Now, spiritually, left is a real question where he was. He seemed to be kind of skeptical of God and religion. But what troubled him was that if there was no God, he said, there's no way you can make a case for human rights. This is right out of the essay. He says, 
You can say it is wrong for a majority to disadvantage any minority, but that's an assertion. It's not a real argument. He says you can say all sorts of things, but what you cannot say is why one person, what one person says is better than any other. If someone says it's all right to control a minority with force and you say it is not right, who is to say your view of reality is right and theirs is wrong? Maybe it helps to put the question this way. If there is no God, who among us gets to impose our will on everyone else into law so that it must be obeyed? Stated that boldly, <coughs> the question is so intellectually unsettling that one would expect to find what we do find. Plenty of legal and ethical thinkers trying not to come to grips with all of this. Avoiding the issue. Do you hear what Laugh is saying? He says, if there is a God, then he would make the law for us to follow. We would base our law on him. And by the way, this is how Western civilization was founded. It was founded on biblical truth because it needed a moral foundation. And in the book, I demonstrate how the Christian moral views have such an, had such an impact on the world that we live in. Particularly in regards to human rights, women's rights, philanthropy, establishing hospitals, mental institutions, orphanages, and the abolition of slavery. But going back to Arthur Leff, listen to this. He's saying that if there is no God, then moral law has to be grounded in human opinion. So the question becomes, who gets to enshrine their human opinion as law so that everyone has to obey it? Why should your view have privilege over my view? And what ends up happening, as you all know, ultimately those in power will make their moral views prevail. That's what happened in Nazi Germany. And you see how this view of life creates more moral confusion in our land? And it's so contradictory. You know, this is what bothered C.S. Lewis so much during his years as an atheist. He said, my life, looking back, my life was full of contradictions. He wrote these words. He says, I was at this time living like so many atheists in a world of contradictions. He says, you know, I didn't believe in a moral law from God, but I was appalled by the terrible things that I saw in my own character and out in the world. He said, I quote, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but where did I come up with this idea of justice and injustice? But then once he became a Christian, he realized and he saw that God has given us absolute moral, the absolute moral law. We have absolute moral obligations. And then, then he recognized that evil, which had been a meaningless word to him, was now a stark reality in life. Philosopher Norman Geisler shares a great story that illustrates the moral confusion in people's lives today and how your life really will be full of, moral, uh, full of contradictions if you don't have a moral standard to live by, an absolute moral standard to live by. And he tells the story, and I don't know whether it's true or not, of a philosophy student, an upper-level philosophy course. 
And the student wrote a research paper arguing that there was no God. Consequently, he went on to argue there can be no objective or absolute moral principles. Now, judged by, this guy, the, the student was very bright, and judged by the paper's research, scholarship, and argumentation, most, most professors would probably have just given him an A. But this professor didn't. He turned the paper back. It was in this nice blue folder. And he turned it back in, gave it back to the student, and wrote these words on the paper. F, I do not like blue folders. <laughs> the student got his paper back, and he stormed into the professor's office, waving it, protesting, this isn't fair. You, what you've done is not right. Why should I be graded on the color of the folder? I should have been graded on the contents of the paper. It took a second for the professor to get him to calm down. And he said, wasn't this the paper which argued that on the basis of the godless universe in which we live, there are no objective moral principles such as fairness and justice? Did you not also argue that everything is a matter of one's subjective likes and dislikes? And the student finally shook his head. He said, well, yes. That's true. And the professor said, your grade remains an F. I do not like blue folders. <laughs> and he says, abruptly, the face of the young man changed. Because it finally struck him that he really did believe in objective moral principles such as fairness and justice. And eventually the professor changed his grade and gave him an A. But he left with a new understanding of the objective nature of morality. You see, it's easy to proclaim that there is no God, but it's quite difficult to live consistently and honestly within the resulting framework. Hopefully this makes some kind of sense. We need, to have the, uh, we need to have a basis for morality. Our morals cannot be determined by the feelings and the opinions of a plurality of people. Otherwise, we'll live neurotic lives and be morally confused. And we will have a difficult time living with the worldview we profess to believe in. And that's the beauty of the Scriptures. The Bible gives to humanity a permanent, absolute, transcendental law. And since the Bible is considered to be the means in which God reveals Himself to man, we can know what is truly right and wrong, what is good and evil, what is moral and immoral. There is no moral confusion. Most significantly, it gives moral meaning and dignity to our existence. Now I want to conclude with a couple of really strong examples, and then I'll wrap it up. We'll be through it ten till. God has given us moral truth because He knows what we need to lead vibrant and healthy lives. He's like a doctor who prescribes what we need for our bodies. 
doesn't just make up arbitrary suggestions, but tells us what to do to live healthy lives. Another way maybe to, to view the Bible, it's like, a, it's like a moral compass that provides moral certainty so that through it, we have the means to address the moral confusion that we see all of around us. And I want to share with you how this has been found to be objectively true in the lives of two very, very brilliant men. The first guy is not a Christian, as far as I can tell. His name is Dr. Gunter Louie. He's a political scientist and also an author. He's taught at Columbia, at Smith College, and then the University of Massachusetts. And back in the 1990s, Louis set out to write a book. And the book was going to be on why America does not need religion. Because you see, Louis had several colleagues who took the position that religion is foundational to morality and social stability. And he wanted to prove that they were dead wrong. In his own words, he intended to make a defense of secular humanism and ethical relativism. But at the end of the day, after extensive research and the sheer weight of the evidence, Louis changed his mind. And he ended up writing this book called Why America Needs Religion. He said religion, he says particularly Christianity, leads to lower rates of almost every social pathology, including crime, drug abuse, teenage pregnancy, and family breakdown. He clearly recognized the positive influence on Christianity as it makes on people's attitudes and intentions. He saw unmistakably how it instills responsibility, moral integrity, compassion, and generosity. And he concluded in his book, these are his own words, contrary to the expectations of the Enlightenment, freeing individuals from the shackles of traditional religion does not result in their moral uplift. To the contrary, the evidence now shows clearly that no society has yet been successful in teaching morality without religion. And he goes on, he makes a very strong argument that biblical morality makes a difference when it's followed out in the real world. And the only way to explain the outcome of his research is to recognize that when people's lives are lined up with the objective structure of God's moral law, they are happier and healthier. Now this second guy is a very unusual man. His name is Dr. Robert Coles. Um, I've read some of his work. He's a Christian. But this is how he's unusual. He's a, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. He's written over 80 books. And he's a psychiatrist. Yet, he teaches literature to business majors at Harvard. He doesn't teach medical school. He teaches business majors teaches literature to business majors at Harvard. And the reason he gives for doing this, he says, we have systems here to explain everything except how to live. And he, spent, he has spent his lifetime, he's a fascinating guy, interviewing people all over the spectrum. 
He spent a lot of time down here during the Civil Rights Movement interviewing people. And this is what he says he's learned about the human condition. He's in his 80s now. This is what he's learned about the human condition. He says, nothing I have discovered about the makeup of human beings contradicts in any way what I learned from the Hebrew prophets such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Amos, and from the book of Ecclesiastes, and from Jesus and the lives of those he touched. Anything I can say as a result of my research into human behavior is a mere footnote to those lives in the Old and New Testaments. He says, I have known human beings who, in the face of unbearable daily stress, respond with resilience, even nobility. And I've known others who live in a comfortable, even luxurious environment, and yet seem utterly lost. We have both sides in all of us, and that's what the Bible says, isn't it? As you can imagine, Cole says he's received a great deal of criticism from those in his profession. Because he says, I speak of human nature in terms of good and evil, light and darkness, self-destruction and redemption. He says, I quote, They want some new theory, I suppose, but my research merely verifies what the Bible has said all along about human beings. Now, my final thought is this, and then I'll, since I have time, I'm going to read one brilliant thing to close this and wrap it up. But my final thought is this. If we don't have God's law revealed in the Bible, then there can be no knowledge of sin. You see, that's one of the real purposes. Apostle Paul talks about this extensively in Galatians and Romans. That God's law reveals our sin. That we all fall short. Or as Frank often says, we're all miserable sinners. And that's what the law reveals. Our sin. But this is what's so crucial. This is what Paul tells us. He says, once we realize we are fallen creatures... We recognize our needs for God's forgiveness that's found only in Christ Jesus. As the Apostle Paul puts it in the book of Galatians, he says, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And I leave you with the words of Charles Malik, former president of Lebanon and of the United Nations General Assembly. He puts this so beautifully. It's a great way to end. I'll read it and then I'll close in prayer. He says, There is truth and there is falsehood. There is good and there is evil. There is happiness and there is misery. There is that which ennobles and, that, and, and there is that which demeans. There is that which puts you in harmony with yourself, with others, with the universe, and with God. And, that, and there is that which alienates you from yourself, from the world, and from God. These things are different and separate and totally distinguishable from one another. Truth is not the same as falsehood. Happiness is not the same as misery. He says the greatest error in modern times, in the day we live in, is the confusion between these orders. Nothing is anything firm in itself. This is the great heresy of the modern world. 
But there is no power on earth or in heaven that can make falsehood truth, evil good, misery happiness, slavery freedom. And yet what do modern philosophers tell you in the great centers of learning? They insist that everything depends on what you mean. The mind becomes so blurred and blunted in its judgment that it fails to see the real given distinction between things. That moral confusion. He says, so how does a person become true and good, happy and genuine, joyful and free? Only by getting in touch with what is good, true, happy, genuine human beings. And he says, that's why you need to turn to the Scriptures. The Old Testament, the Psalms, the Gospels. He said, read them reverently and prayerfully every day. And he says, if you do, he says, I guarantee you two things. First, you will experience in your own life in being a taste of what is beautiful and strong and certain and free. And second, you will then develop a sharpness of vision to differentiate between the true and the phony, between the beautiful and the hideous, between the noble and the mean. I've really enjoyed being with you this past three weeks. Uh, Y'all been a great audience. Let me close in prayer. Thank you. Lord, we thank you again for what you've revealed to us in the Scriptures. We thank you that it is not only true, but it is rock solid. And it's something that we can build our lives on as a real foundation. Lord, as we depart, I pray your blessing on each person in this room. Pray you bless their, their marriages, their families, their lives together. And I pray that you would continue to bless this church as it proclaims the gospel, shares the light with the world that lives in darkness. We are truly grateful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.